there's an existing incumbent nearby and they claim that area, then they can say, no, you can't fund that, we'll challenge it. And then they don't really have to give you a time frame as to when they are going to provide that service. So it's a real showstopper. This is episode 267 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Michael Anderson from Spiral Internet and Christopher talk about the California company, their history, and their approach. They also discuss what it's like to work in an environment where national providers do all they can to prevent competition from ISPs like Spiral. Some of those efforts are playing out right now as the state legislature reviews funding that has traditionally been used to expand Internet access in rural areas. Before we start the interview... We want to remind you that this commercial-free conversation is not free to produce. Please take a moment to contribute at ILSR.org. If you've already contributed, thanks. Now here's Christopher and Michael Anderson from Spiral Internet. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up here in Minneapolis. Today I'm talking with Michael Anderson, the Chief Information Officer for Spiral Internet, uh, all the way out there in California. Welcome to the show. No, Thank you, Chris. So you are in California, but um, in a place called Nevada City, I believe, uh, which confuses me every single time I talk to you or one of your folks from Spiral Internet. Can you tell us a little bit about more about your company? Whenever uh, you hear Nevada City, California, people still think that we are in the state of Nevada, uh, which is not the case. Um, actually, Nevada City had the, Nova- the name Nevada first, and then when the state came along, um, they added the city. That was back in the 1850s. So uh, anyways, Nevada City is a gold rush town uh, located halfway between um, Lake Tahoe and Sacramento. And uh, we're off the I-80, a little bit north of there. Uh, interestingly enough, it's a technology hub. Um starting with uh, the mining technology going back into the 1850s. And now, uh, after World War II, uh, a gentleman by the name of Linton came up here and did um, glass tubes for uh, uh, technology after the war effort. And then um, the Grass Valley Group is based here, which is a a video equipment manufacturer. And um, they've had spinoffs since the uh, 1960s. So, uh, we call ourselves Video Valley, and we've got uh, about 150 technology companies here, um, though we our population is just about 100,000. And you're not an incumbent provider, right? You are a company that uh, sort of sprung up to fill in gaps and seize an opportunity to actually provide good service <laughs> compared to the incumbents. Well, that's correct. Yeah, so um, back in the 90s, AT&T, uh, was the incumbent, and they had dial-up and then um, introduced DSL, and then Comcast came in. Uh, we have two cities here right, that are side-by-side, side, about three miles apart, Grass Valley and Nevada City. And um, there were a number of DSL resellers, Spiral being one of them, that competed with AT&T uh, in the 2000s. And uh, so that's that's our history. We've been around actually since um the mid '90s, uh, when we first offered dial-up to compete with uh, AT&T and other dial-up providers, but uh, so around 2010, realized that Comcast was pretty much done with their build, and they had stuck to the city centers, and uh, AT&T was um, starting to not expand with the DSL anymore, and we uh, 
uh, realized that it was um, time to start thinking about fiber. So um, that's when uh, our CEO, John Paul, uh, and his partner, Chip Carmen, started going to some conferences and, and understanding and learning about uh, what was happening with fiber out in the rest of the country and uh, decided to do a proposal for a fiber project through the um, California Public Utilities Commission, uh, California Advanced Services Fund. It's interesting because I've met John Paul a few times at broadband communities, and I just wanted to um, throw in a quick plug for people who are not aware, but there's a broadband communities event up in Atlanta um, coming down um, in November. It's the second week, I believe, right. of November. And it's um, if people go to bbcmag.com slash Atlanta, you'll find information about it. So just wanted to slide that in there. And, um, and it's been great. I actually feel kind of bad because I've talked to John Paul like for many years. And then I met you one time and I was like, come on my show. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, one of the things that, that I found interesting is that there's, there's certainly private companies and municipalities that I think of as seeing their role as kind of doing what Comcast does, but doing it with better technology, more reasonable pricing, good customer service. But they haven't really changed the business model in, in interesting ways necessarily, aside from those things which are clearly valued by subscribers. Um, you guys have a different philosophy, I think. Yeah, we do, because um, through the educational process that we've undergone and, and understanding how things are being done in Asia and Europe through um, what's known as open access, where you know the, the fiber um, or whatever other wireline technology uh, is a utility, and then the retail services are on top of that. And the, the competition for those retail services really um, uh, drives the price down and provides a lot of um, granularity for customers as to what kind of services they want, whether it's phone or data or um, video content. Whereas, you know, here with proprietary networks in the United States, people are stuck with bundles. So uh, we're not doing a bundle. We will be providing just the um, the internet and then uh, helping our customers figure out how they want to do uh, their retail services. And, um, you know, hopefully in the future, the United States will become more of a open access um, uh, country and, and the proprietary networks will start to uh, diminish. Does that mean then that, that you're open to if some of the counties around you or communities wanted to, to build just the infrastructure and lease it to you to operate on, that you would be open to that? Absolutely. And that's we've been actually talking to uh, a number of um, communities in Northern California um, yesterday, uh, talking with our CFO, and uh, he was curious. So how many you know communities are we actually talking about? And, and there's 22 of them that are... Um, Currently, you know, unserved or underserved, um, they have DSL that's starting to fall through the cracks, and uh, the um, incumbent, whether it's Comcast or Suddenlink or um, Charter or whoever else, that they're really kind of stuck in a very tight um, footprint and not willing to um, move out of, of a you know dense city center. So the surrounding areas in those 22 communities are just really hurting, and and they're all. Uh, starting to show up at these conferences and trying to figure out, well, you know, what's our, what is our option? So they're looking at muni builds and they're looking at ways to um, get things kind of kickstarted, but 
they're not really interested in running the actual um, ISP or, you know, finding those retail services. So we're trying to figure out ways to help them do that. So, yeah, we're in discussions with a number of communities in Northern California. And that's sort of how we what we see as our uh, footprint in the next, you know, three to five years. And I think just as a reminder, you um, you say Northern California. It's funny because I always think of it as Eastern California. I'm not being all that savvy with how people think of it. But uh, to be f- clear, this is not the Redwood Coast area. This is um, more in the, the mountains and things like that, right? Well, actually, uh, yeah, people have um, different ideas out there <laughs> as to what Northern California really is. I mean, California is an enormous place. And a lot of people think, oh, Northern California, you're talking about San Francisco. Well, <laughs> I always get a kick out of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and so we're, we're really not looking at San Francisco. We're looking at everything north of San Francisco. And so if you were to draw a line through Marin County all the way to the state of Nevada, say Reno, um, everything north of that all the way to the Oregon border is, is the territory that we're looking at. So Nevada County, Nevada City, Grass Valley, that's in that area. And Sacramento is there. They have, of course, a number of incumbents. But um, surprisingly enough, a big city like Sacramento, the capital of the state of California, the more um, suburban and even rural areas just outside of uh, the Sacramento city footprint are are also having um, a tremendous amount of difficulty getting good broadband in those areas. Sure. I I wish that was a surprise, unfortunately. (laughs) So one of the things that, that California has done to try and remedy that, and, and you mentioned that you've been a recipient of a, of a grant from this process, but the California Public Utilities Commission, which is often called the CPUC, um, they have a program that is open to all, really, I, I believe, although it's mostly smaller companies such as yourself that have taken advantage of it, where they offer a grant program to try and uh, improve internet access in specific communities. and. Um, before we get into how some of the providers or some of the big big companies like AT&T are trying to change it, I'm, maybe you can just describe how the process works for the, the rounds that you've been involved in. I guess around 2010, uh, a former commissioner on the, on the Public Utilities Commission ha- had really noticed that, that this uh, underserved and under an unserved area um, issue was, was starting to come to a head. So she was able to, uh, her name is uh, Rochelle Shong, and she was able to um, lobby the, the current commissioners to create this um, fund called the California Advanced Services Fund under the CPC. And uh, that allowed any provider, it, it could be um, Comcast or AT&T, but it was mostly designed for smaller companies like Spiral to apply for funds to uh, help these rural areas get connected with a faster um, version of broadband. How is it funded? Okay, so it's funded through a small tax that's on um, everybody's landline bill in the state of California. Uh, I think it's about 14 cents, and it's there every month for just the, you know, copper landline connection. And it translates to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, over, you know, two or three years time frame. And so what happens is, is that um, uh, I believe the first funding was in 2011. And then there was one in 2014. And I think and then now there's a new one that's coming along. But but what happens is, is that the the money gets put into the fund, and then um, the fund is drawn down by applications. And then once it gets to a point where it needs to be replenished, then it goes to the legislature again, and then they um, 
go through the process of reviewing the program and uh, um, agreeing to continue having that tax on all the landline bills. And and this is something that uh, even some of the bigger carriers themselves have taken part of. I, I think Frontier, I've seen their name pop up sometimes. So this isn't just a, a program for, for smaller companies like you. It's really available and been used by um, large companies as well, right? That is correct. I believe Frontier has, has taken advantage of it. And of course, Frontier took over um, the Verizon region that, that um, they had previously had in California. Uh, up until... Now, the companies like Comcast and Suddenlink and, and Charter and um, AT&T had not taken uh, advantage of the fund. In fact, they made it pretty clear that they uh, were interested and they supported the program and were just neutral on how they felt about what was going on with this. Right. Although, as we're about to learn, that didn't last. Suddenly, something's different. And uh, this is something that I've railed on before, but it, it sounds like um, there's an effort to kind of poison it and um, an effort from the big companies to protect their turf in ways that will make the program really less valuable overall, unfortunately. That seems to be what's happening. So um, the current assembly bill is um, AB 1665. And uh, they they were hoping to be able to vote on it in the current session, but uh, they had to table it because of uh, this increased interest on the part of AT&T and Comcast. Their their lobbyists started to really uh, get involved in the process. And, and I do want to mention on a side note that um, rural broadband is a bipartisan issue. So uh, many of the uh, assembly members who are on this legislation are um, – uh, Republicans in very conservative um, rural districts, and uh, they're co-sponsors and, and have, after um, some education, have, have really come on board with the concept of uh, getting this money and having it go to whoever's willing to put a project in place in their areas because, you know, most of these areas are agricultural, and, um, you know, you really can't compete in the agricultural world without a good broadband connection. I mean, that's that's what's happening, and they see that. And so um, they're on board, and it's really great to have a bipartisan issue that, um, you know, conservatives and, and liberals can get together on and, and work hard on trying to uh, solve this problem. And, and I think it's also worth noting, and I, I hope you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but this is uh, the kind of thing for people who see the world often as Republican versus Democrat. Um, this is um, also the case that the AT&T lobbyists spend a lot of time golfing with Democrats and prominent Democrats. Uh, I think the LA Times has done a series of stories about just how powerful AT&T is with the Democrats. So this isn't kind of a situation for people who want to be a purist on one side or the other. This is it's complicated as to um, um, how the parties break down in supporting uh, this kind of high-quality access when they're faced with a powerful lobbying campaign from AT&T. That's right. That, that's right on. And, and the cities on the coast, LA and, and San Francisco and and San Diego, um, you know, those are all predominantly Democratic legislatures and, and and legislators, and they really don't have much understanding of um, the rural broadband um, problem. They look at what what's happened in the in their cities, and they consider themselves to be very well served by the incumbents, 
And um, when the incumbents tell them that the cities in the rural areas are also served in the same manner, they don't really spend a lot of time, you know, in our area. They don't see how people live and where they live. And so, you know, the the fact that there's a a line where that service stops is a little bit um, uh, unknown to them. So that's part of the education that we've had to undergo in Sacramento. And we're doing our lobbying and, and working with the legislators and saying, look, you know, yeah, you're, you've got a nice situation in the city, um, but uh, out here we have a little bit of a different situation. And and um, yeah, come on up and spend some time with us and we'll show you exactly what we're talking about. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I'd really like to mention is our, our probably our biggest lobbying group in, in rural California are the realtors and the people that are now faced with situations where they're trying to sell homes and property that um, used to be served by DSL and actually are losing service. And uh, we have a number of realtors who here in Nevada County who have fallen out of escrow because, um, you know, the home was was put in on the market. It had DSL service. And then uh, come to find out after uh, the sale, the DSL was no longer available. Um, And that's just been really kind of crazy. And to explain the mechanics of that, something that, that we've seen before is that there may be a limited number of circuits. There's a waiting list to get on it. So when a homeowner is is selling their home and they're leaving, they lose service. And then you don't get new service as a new person moving in. You get put on a wait list until other people move out, basically. Yeah. And here in Nevada County, the wait list, that, that, that actually, they don't even do that anymore. There is no wait list. So what we tell the realtors, and this is what they're doing here in Nevada County, is is if you're selling your home, you don't turn off your your telephone service, your landline service, which has the DSL attached. You leave it in your name and let it go through escrow and then just basically hand that off to the new owner under the name of the previous owner. And then, you you know, wait a year or whatever and then put your name on it as as a uh, another person on that landline. If there's not a waiting list, why are they turning circuits off? I mean, is it still a shortage? I mean, do they have fewer DSL circuits today than they did six months ago? Yeah, and that's just anecdotal. Um, I don't, I don't know exactly how that that's all um, set up. But you know, as a as a DSL provider, Spiral, we know that there's less DSL service in the areas that we resell over those copper lines than we had before because they are decreasing the number of connections. And I think that's just part of the strategy that uh, AT&T has with their wireless. Um, you know, they're, they're moving to a wireless uh, business model. They have a Connected America Fund um, grant that they're using in rural California. Uh, I think it's $60 million that um, they're putting up cell towers and uh, they'll have um, – 5G as well as fixed wireless on those towers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe it when I see it. <laughs> I'm just I'm trying to I'm trying to calm down over here as you're describing that because we've been following what AT&T is doing and at least in the southeast and in a lot of other places it seems like they're just planning on doing a straight 10 megabit by 1 megabit, cashing all that money from the federal government and then saying why would we ever upgrade? You know, if you want us to upgrade, you can throw a billion dollars at us again. Um so I, I want to get back, though, um, rather than um, talking about the sad plight of folks um, and, and talk more about the solutions. Um, but 
before we get there, the the thing that we've been we were dancing around, and the thing that AT and T and and some of the cable companies are trying to do is this basically a right of first refusal. And so, if you can just um, just tell me exactly how this works and and what the concern is uh, in the in Sacramento over this uh, proposed change to the CPUC um, broadband funds. There's a couple of things that that they've added to this um, recent legislation, AB sixteen sixty five. To uh, I, poison pill is probably a, a bit harsh, but um, anyways, it's it's a way of making it so that less people will have access to this funding. And one of those is um, they've added this uh, this one line: the commission shall award grants from the broadband infrastructure grant account on a technology neutral basis, including both wireline and wireless technology. Now that's new because before when we received our grant in December of uh, 2015, the commissioners were very clear that the wireless technology, fixed wireless technology, really wasn't um, going to be robust enough moving forward. And those were the challengers that had that had challenged our grant. And uh, you know, it's one of the reasons it took two years for after our application to to be approved is that we had to go through these wireless challengers, and these were um, fixed wireless providers in our region. Um, smaller companies, and and so we were able to prove that they didn't have the coverage that they that they said that they did. So adding that back in there, where the the um, commissioners had um, in our resolution uh, approving our grant proposal, they had said that that wireless needed to be um, looked at as a legacy technology. So that's one thing. Um, the other one is the one you just talked about in terms of if an um, existing incumbent is going to be um, providing service. The actual language here is the commission shall annually offer an existing facility-based provider the opportunity to demonstrate that it will provide broadband access to a delineated unserved area within a reasonable time frame. The commission shall not approve funding for a project providing broadband access to a delineated unserved area if the existing facility-based provider demonstrates to the commission that it will, within a reasonable time frame, upgrade existing service to provide broadband access throughout the project area. So that's new language. And basically what it's, what it's saying is if there's an existing incumbent nearby and they claim that area, then they can say, no, you can't fund that, we'll challenge it. And then they don't really have to give you a time frame as to when they are going to provide that service. So it, it's a real showstopper. Well, and I think maybe you can describe to us how the conversation would go now if you go to a bank or some other investor in a project and, and they're saying, well, wait, you know, you can you can put in this application, but at any point you can basically get derailed by the incumbent. That's not something that it's something that seems like it has a, a lot more risk suddenly. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So, so you know, the the private funders that we work with, um, they've expressed concerns with this, with these, uh, with this new language, and and we're hoping again, it's still in uh, committee, and we're hoping that we can get that pulled out. It just got added recently, so you know, it's a it's a back and forth, and and we're hoping that people will understand, you know, the ramifications of that language and what it does to really reduce the amount of area in Northern California that will be available for um, this kind of funding. Well, especially when you just consider that there's so much freedom of the incumbent then basically to just circle 
all of the areas that have higher density, um, higher marginal profit potential, and just deny a business case to anyone to connect the other areas as well. And then those areas are just totally left behind. I mean, this sort of language just, I find it infuriating because I understand if someone hears constantly from the cable lobbyists from AT&T, oh, we have to do it this way. But like, you need to run this by someone critically and say, hey, if this is what we're trying to achieve, if we're trying to say we don't want to, for the state to create unfair competition, is this a good way to do it or not? And, and obviously it's not. Yeah, I, I totally agreed. And in fact, I mentioned that we were um, we had challenges with our project where um, in the grant that we were given that that the challenges were from fixed wireless comes. But we did have one challenge from from Comcast, and it was for a very specific area that they said that they served. And as a matter of fact, they didn't serve that area. So we actually had to go. We, we had that money pulled out of our grant um, where it had originally been set up. And then we've had to go um, house by house and say, are you served? And have them um, you know, write basically an affidavit saying, no, I'm not served. And then uh, we're in the process of having uh, re-challenging that and getting that money put back in, which we're very confident is going to happen. I mean, I don't want to just presume bad faith, but you hear enough of these stories and it's either incompetence or bad faith and neither one of them should be rewarded by the regulators or the lawmakers. And um, next week we're going to be doing a show if the schedule holds in which we'll talk more about some of the wireless issues and um, and actually federal grants and how – you know, if this is money to try and deal with unserved areas, one should not embrace a technology that cannot cover some people. I mean, a lot of these WISPs, even WISPs that are doing a great job, they're using a technology where if you're living on the wrong side of a hill, they can't cover you. And and we should be really thinking hard about whether we're going to subsidize technologies that leave some people out. Right. Uh, exactly. Uh, you're, you're right on the money with that. So with um you know with a, with a nice interview that got increasingly ranty by the host uh, I really appreciate you <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on and and I think um you know giving people a hope also that, that that there's companies out there that that get the benefits of open access and that um ideally we can find a way to make sure everyone's covered and has a choice and and has high quality connectivity. Yeah, and I really appreciate what you're doing because I I think the key to all of this is education. I mean, that's what we do all day long and that there are so many people that just because they live in the United States and they their only experience with broadband, you know, is based on a bundle and a proprietary network, they have no idea what open open access is, what it would look like, how it would function, and once you tell them, they, their eyes open up wide and they just say, "Wow, um, how do we get that?" So that's what we're hoping to do is is get that education out there and help people understand that this is the way for America to be globally competitive and without adequate broadband, um, we're really going to be having a difficult time with that. Right. Well, let's go build some markets then. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate the time. That was Michael Anderson from Spiral Internet visiting with Christopher about the company and how big internet access providers are lobbying to change funding rules in California. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
never miss out on our original research, subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 267 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Podcast.